Welcome to News for CHROs, This Week in HR Policy, brought to you by HR Policy Association, the premier group for chief human resource officers and senior HR executives at multinational and U.S. employers. My name is Henry Eichelberg, and I'm the chief operating officer of the association, and this podcast will provide listeners with every single significant human resources, public policy, and key best practice development each week. All right, well, we're back after a few week break due to the July 4th holiday with this week in HR policy for the week ending on Friday, July 14th, 2023. This week, we'll cover HR policies webinar on the implications of the Supreme Court's Harvard decision on DEI. We'll also cover the EEOC confirmation, which gave the Democrats majority. Greg Hoff writes about a letter from Republican state attorney generals, which threatened legal action against companies for DEI practices. The center's CEO, Ani Wong, details the lessons learned during a CEO transition. We have Wen Chao Dong with HR Policy Global that summarizes a global member discussion on the shifting business and human rights landscape. HR Policy's Mark Wilson updates us on the House Committee advancing four healthcare transparency bills. HR Policy's Megan Wolf details for us about the association's support for a two-year delay on Roth catch-up retirement contributions. And finally, HR Policy's Greg Hoff details the state paid family leave patchwork continuing to grow as the state of Maine passed a comprehensive policy. So first up this week, we have a webinar recap on the implications of the Supreme Court's Harvard decision on DEI webinar that we hosted this week. This week, HR Policy Association hosted a webinar exploring the impact of the recent Supreme Court rulings that effectively ended affirmative action in its current form in higher education and the impact that has on company DEI initiatives. So by now, most people are aware that on June 29th, the Supreme Court issued its decision in Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard and Students for Fair Admission versus North Carolina, ruling that colleges and universities may no longer consider race in admissions decisions. HR Policy hosted a webinar to review the decision and discuss its potential short and long-term implications for employers. Notably, while the decision does not change existing obligations for employers under Title VII, which prohibits discrimination in employment decisions, it may spur increased challenges to employer DEI practices. Guest speaker Jason Schwartz from Gibson Dunn began the webinar with an overview of the two cases. Mr. Schwartz noted that this decision will make DEI initiatives and practitioners more important in the future. He also spoke of the importance of conducting privileged audits on current DEI programs and to categorize those programs as green, meaning acceptable as is, yellow, meaning needing review, or red, meaning needing alteration to protect against potential legal challenges. Lucien Alazari, the Chief Human Resources Officer of Prudential Financial, discussed company approaches to DEI in the wake of the ruling. According to Mr. Alziari, DEI programs are not intended to create an advantage, but to create an equal playing field. 
he also discussed the importance of establishing a senior executive level inclusion council and implementing effective communication to employees on these programs to reaffirm the organization's values. The association's Shelley Carlin noted, look at demographic shifts and how it impacts your timeline when discussing how the Supreme Court decision will affect company initiatives. When speaking about the future of DEI programs, Ms. Carlin noted the importance of continuous internal review practices. A series of lawsuits against diversity programs are already pending in state and federal courts. While it remains to be seen how such legal challenges shake out over the coming years. In the meantime, HR Policy Association will continue to provide resources and engage the membership in examining practical implications of the Supreme Court's rulings and what impact those implications may have on the diversity of the talent pipeline coming into the workforce. Next, we have EEOC Confirmation Gives Democrats Majority by HR Policy's Mark Wilson. This week, with a 49 to 47 vote, the Senate confirmed Kalpana Katagal to the EEOC, giving the Democrats a majority on the EEOC for the first time since January 2017. Further, the confirmation paves the way for the commission to jumpstart the Biden administration's policy agenda. So what does this mean for employers? First, employers can expect the EEOC to now reinstate the Obama-era EEO-1 pay data reporting requirements. Second, Employers can expect formal guidance on artificial intelligence, harassment, and discrimination against LGBTQ workers. And they can expect new rules implementing the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and incentives to participate in wellness programs. The EEOC is also expected to advance novel legal theories that push the envelope in the court cases that it files. So what's the outlook here? A handful of high-profile actions that the commissioner has been quietly working on in her office could be proposed in a short period of time now that Democrat appointees hold the majority. Next, we have Republican State Attorney Generals Threaten Legal Action Against Companies for DEI Practices by HR Policies Greg Hoff. In response to the Supreme Court's decision in Harvard UNC, in which the court effectively prohibited affirmative action in higher education, 13 Republican state attorney generals circulated a letter to Fortune 100 companies threatening lawsuits over potentially unlawful DEI practices. Racial discrimination is commonplace among Fortune 100 companies, the letter claims without evidence that corporate DEI practices and initiatives amount to pervasive racial discrimination, including, quote, explicit racial quotas and preferences in hiring, recruiting, retention, promotion, and advancement, end quote. The letter also claims that such practices include race-based contracting practices such as racial preferences and quotas in selecting suppliers. Quotas or goals? The letter cites three articles in support of the above assertions in which various DEI initiatives at several large companies are detailed. These initiatives include commitments to increase minority representation among new hires, leadership, and third-party contractors, including aspirational goals such as striving for a certain percentage of new hires 
to be from a underrepresented group. The Republican AG's letter equates or conflates such goals to strict hiring quotas, despite statements by the companies in the same cited articles to the contrary. While strict racial or gender-based hiring quotas are unlawful under federal employment anti-discrimination law, neither the letter nor the article it cites provide evidence that Fortune 100 companies actually use such quotas. The letter threatens to hold accountable those companies that use any unlawful race-based quotas or preferences in employment and contracting practices. Quote, your company must overcome its underlying bias and treat all employees, all applicants, and all contractors equally without regard for race. So what's the outlook here? The letter is the latest clear harbinger of increased legal challenges to company DEI practices in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision in Harvard UNC. While that decision by itself did not change employers' legal obligations under Title VII, which prohibits discrimination in employment, it is clear that it will incite legal challenges to corporate DEI practices. Employers should consider auditing their DEI practices and initiatives to ensure they remain in full compliance with Title VII. Next up, we have Lessons Learned During a CEO Transition by the Center on Executive Compensation's Ani Wong. Unrealistic timelines and a lack of understanding of obligations to current and incoming CEOs are among the top mistakes companies and boards make when transitioning CEOs, according to a new report by SCAD. Among the nine mistakes to avoid based on working with boards on CEO succession were the following. First, unrealistic timelines. Often during a CEO transition, things move quickly, sometimes too quickly, to ensure important concerns are considered. Skadden recommends that board and committee meetings be properly scheduled and noticed, and in some cases, the current CEO must legally be identified before the board acts. Securities law requires filing of public disclosure multiple times along the way. The terms of the outgoing CEO's departure the new CEO's agreement, and communication with investors need to be carefully managed to ensure compliance. Second, excluding relevant stakeholders. Although confidentiality is important, Skadden notes that excluding individuals such as the Chief Human Resource Officer, General Counsel, or the Board's Independent Compensation Consultant can cause more problems than it solves. Third, obligations to the current CEO. Foot faults can occur where there is a lack of understanding regarding all obligations to the outgoing CEO. The terms of the employment agreement, severance plan, equity award agreements, and other outstanding obligations. This is where failing to engage the chief human resource officer or compensation consultant can be dangerous. Fourth, terms of offer to the new CEO. In the same vein, companies should avoid having the board try to manage the terms of employment for the new CEO without the advice of the compensation consultant. There may be limitations, internal or external, of which the board is not aware that may impact the compensation arrangements for the new CEO. Fifth, disclosure of reason for termination. ISS recently codified its stance on executive severance to stipulate that if a termination is not involuntary, or is clearly disclosed as involuntary, there is a major risk of a no recommendation on say on pay. 
This can be very tricky in circumstances where there is a lack of consensus among board members on what the company should say publicly about the CEO's departure. Contractual agreements to confidentiality and non-defamation may also come into play. And finally, the legal impact of CEO termination. Finally, Skadden notes that the termination of a CEO may trigger contractual rights for other executives, including good reason provisions, and may impact the enforceability of non-compete provisions or other restrictive covenants for the CEO. Next, we have global members discuss the shifting business and human rights landscape by HR Policy Global's Wen Chaodong. For the past decade, supply chain legislation has focused on forced and child labor and the lack of accountability and enforcement measures. However, a proposed European Union directive on corporate sustainability due diligence has the potential to change the scope of the business and human rights landscape from a corporate social responsibility topic to a major compliance issue for global employers. To discuss and address these challenges, HR Policy Global hosted a group of experts to discuss the expansive risks and actions companies can take now to minimize risk. The panelists shared several practical steps to prepare for the changes. First, conduct ongoing risk assessments and mapping to identify human rights and environmental risks and take appropriate measures to prevent, mitigate, or remediate the risks and any adverse impacts. Second, create a comprehensive and explicit code of conduct for suppliers and make sure that all expectations are communicated. Third, contribute to the achievement of a living wage for employers and a living income for self-employed workers and smallholders to meet the needs of their families. Fourth, establish a consistent, actionable, and measurable grievance mechanism. Fifth, engage meaningfully with effective stakeholders through the due diligence process. This includes providing information on the value chain and actual or potential adverse impacts on the environment, human rights, and good governance. And finally, do not transfer due diligence responsibilities to business partners and suppliers and create fair and reasonable contractual measures. The panelists noted that once the European Union's directive is passed, each member state will incorporate it into its own laws. Companies will then have to translate these due diligence expectations into contract language for business partners and suppliers, which will have to cope with diverse reporting obligations in different member states. We are hoping the EU will harmonize or standardize the requirements consistently across all of its member states. On the DOL's work, the panelists stated that the U.S. government is in constant communication with policymakers in the EU Parliament and the member state as well as the Commission level. They also shared helpful resources such as the International Child Labor and Forced Labor Reports and the Comply Chain, Business Tools for Labor Compliance in Global Supply Chains. Next, we have House Committee Advances Four Healthcare Transparency Bills by HR Policies Mark Wilson. This week, the House Education and Workforce Committee approved 
for HR policy supported bills that would increase hospital and PBM transparency. The first bill, the Transparency in Billing Act, was approved with a 39 to nothing vote and would require hospitals and their off-campus outpatient locations to provide unique health identifiers for the department where the item or service was provided to ensure claims are appropriately billed. The Transparency in Coverage Act was approved with a 38 to 1 vote. I wonder who the one vote was. And would require insurers to make public certain data, including claims, payment policies, and information on cost sharing and payments for out-of-network coverage. It also would prevent insurers or PBMs from entering into contracts with drug manufacturers if they cannot comply with the transparency requirements. The Health Data Act was approved also with a 38 to 1 vote, and would ensure employers can access and audit de-identified health claims to make sure compensation by the plan is reasonable. And the fourth bill, the Hidden Fee Disclosure Act, was approved again with a 38 to 1 vote and would strengthen the requirements that PBMs and third-party administrators, TPAs, disclose certain compensation data to employers. Oh yeah, here we go. Here's the no vote. Representative Eric Burlinson, Republican from Missouri, was the lone no vote against three of the bills, arguing each would have a downstream effect that would increase prices. Separately, the House Energy and Commerce and Health Subcommittee passed the Telehealth Benefits Expansion for Workers Act, which would allow employers to permanently offer telehealth benefits as a standalone expected benefit to part-time and seasonal employees who do not qualify for full health benefits. So what's the outlook here? The broad bipartisan support for the bills greatly increases the likelihood the bills will be brought to the House floor later this year. At a time of intense partisan differences, Chair Virginia Fox, Republican from North Carolina, and Ranking Member Bobby Scott, Democrat from Virginia, and their colleagues demonstrated welcome leadership in a very contentious area of federal health care policy. Next, we have HR Policy Supports Two-Year Delay on Roth Ketchup Retirement Contributions by HR Policy's Megan Wolf. This week, HR Policy Association signed a coalition letter to Congress urging transition relief for a Secure 2.0 Act provision, which requires ketchup contributions to be made on an after-tax basis for retirement plans for participants earning over $145,000 a year. The letter seeks congressional legislation that would provide a two-year delay to January 1st, 2026 of the Roth catch-up requirement described in Section 603 of the Secure 2.0 Act. The letter also requests additional time for state governments to consider and enact additional required legislation, as well as considerations for collective bargaining agreements. The coalition letter emphasizes the need for quick action, stating that unless the requirement is delayed very quickly, i.e. the summer, their only means for compliance will be to eliminate all catch-up contributions for 2024. Thus, many retirement plan participants would lose the ability to make catch-up contributions after December 31, 2023, if no relief is taken. Retirement experts cite administrative complexities such as plan designs that do not offer a Roth feature, payroll systems that lack the mechanisms to identify 2023 wages of more than $145,000, 
by January 21st, and system integration between in-house payroll and HRS systems and service providers as some of the practical considerations to successfully comply with the rule. A subsequent letter will be sent to the IRS and U.S. Treasury Department this month, highlighting the specific challenges and areas needing additional guidance. The Treasury Department has historically provided transition relief by announcing that the IRS will not seek penalties for noncompliance for an extended period of time. Next, we have state paid family leave patchwork continues to grow as Maine joins the party. Maine is set to become the 13th state requiring paid family and medical leave for private employers through a law recently signed by Governor Janet Mills. The law would provide up to 12 weeks of paid leave per year with the costs split between employer and employee. More than a quarter of U.S. states now require paid family and medical leave. The Maine law covers all employers in the state with at least 15 employees. Any employee who has earned at least $6,216 in the previous year is eligible for leave under the law and can take the leave immediately after starting employment. Other features of the law include, first, the program will provide 90% wage replacement for employees making less than or equal to 50% of $1,036 per week and 66% wage replacement for weekly wages above that 50% threshold. Second, employees may take up to 12 weeks of paid leave for the usual FMLA qualifying reasons. However, family member is defined expansively as any individual with whom the covered individual has a significant personal bond, regardless of biological or legal relationship. Third, the program is funded through a 1% payroll tax split evenly by the employer and employee. Employers with less than 15 employees must still offer leave to employees under the law, but are exempt from paying into the program. Fourth, employers offering comparable private paid leave plans can opt out of the program, but cannot impose costs on employees greater than would be under the law. The law will go into effect in 2026 with the payroll tax starting in 2025. Notably, the law has been lauded as the product of a bipartisan commission made up of Democrats and Republicans. The result highlights the increasing appetite for expanded paid leave from both sides of the aisle and in red and blue states alike. The law is also the latest to expand the definition of family member to include non-legal or biological relationships an increasingly common feature of such laws. So what's the outlook here? More than a quarter of states and D.C. now require paid family and medical leave, mainly on both the West and East Coasts. Despite the growing state patchwork, paid family and medical leave remains elusive at the federal level, with another Congress nearly come and gone without any meaningful movement on the issue. The main law, with an evenly split payroll tax and opt-outs for qualifying private plans, could provide an agreeable bipartisan blueprint. And that's it. Thanks for listening to News for CHROs This Week in HR Policy. I'm Henry Eichelberg with HR Policy Association, the premier trade association for chief human resource officers and senior HR executives.
For more information about the association, visit our website at www.hrpolicy.org. And we'll see you next week for the next news for CHROs.